0: Hello everyone and welcome to Sunrise Bay Radio. We are broadcasting the decade of the Green New Deal from the occupied territory of the Ohlone people in the San Francisco Bay Area. My name is Marit and this is my co-host Richard.
1: Today we're talking about what a green and just recovery from a pandemic-induced depression could look like. We have three interviews for you, Dr. Elora Durenincourt, professor at UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy. Dr. Mishin Cha, professor at Occidental College's Urban and Environmental Policy Institute, and Fred Glass, labor historian and former communications director for the California Federation of Teachers.
0: We're super excited to bring you today's content. And on a lower note, let's get started by talking about the present economic dilemma that we find ourselves in. Many of us younger folks are experiencing our first recession. Or is it a depression? What do you think, Richard?
1: I'd make a concession that this recession is a depression. It also uh-huh. might be our second recession because uh, the 2007 one, right?
0: Right. So there will be some folks who who remember that, and uh, a lot of a lot of people have been affected economically, whether that's their job or. Um, for me, my organization has uh, furloughed a lot of staff and actually cut a lot of hours. I'm my hours are cut, and I'm doing just fine. But for a lot of people that you know have Children and families to provide for. I can imagine uh, just what kind of circumstances they must be in. So, I think I think everyone who's listening can probably resonate with uh, the changes that are happening right now. Um, and back in April, a government usually bent on taking money away from people in mere weeks recognized the need to send money to U.S. citizens. So that's really saying something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There needs to be more, though, and now Senate Republicans are balking at providing more aid, even though the situation has only worsened. Some people have barely noticed the economic difference, but for others, their entire world has been turned upside down. Our correspondent Mukta talked with Dr. Elora Durenancourt to get a sense of what past recessions have looked like and what may be in store in the near future.
2: My name is Mukta, and I'm here virtually with Dr. Elora Durenencourt a new professor at UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy. She studies labor economics and economic history with an emphasis on inequality. Her work has been featured in The Economist, NPR, and The New York Times. Alora, thanks for joining Sunrise Bay Radio.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
2: What are you expecting the U.S. economy to look like over the next year?
3: Unfortunately, I actually think uh, things are not looking good and... um, It's widely recognized now that the recovery is stalling. And in many ways, I think things could get worse. So um, one issue is that many of the protections of the CARES Act have just expired. Among those include a moratorium on evictions for uh, renters living in homes with federally backed mortgages. It turns out that in a lot of cases, landlords don't need to disclose if their um, mortgages have federal uh, backing. So that's a whole other issue. But this expired, uh, I believe, on July 25th. So the numbers range, but millions, maybe something like 30 million renters face potential eviction uh, going forward. So it's hard to stay at home, you know, if we undergo further lockdowns, if you don't have a home, right? Um, Second, I mentioned that the federal pandemic unemployment compensation benefit, that extra $600 a week that workers were getting, that's expired. And now Congress is in total you know, disagreement between Democrats and Republicans about extending this payment with Republicans not wanting to extend it at all, Democrats wanting to keep it at 600. So that means that people are just, they've been using, you know, I think something like one in four families has been using that payment to uh, pay the bills and to keep afloat. So now they won't have that. Um, State and local governments are, again, facing deficits, and so they're going to start contracting, making layoffs. That's a process that kind of takes some time to unfold. So even as certain uh, indicators suggest that the economy is recovering, we're going to have this wave of layoffs from state and local governments contracting. Um, Finally, by one estimate I saw recently, uh, something like, 400,000 businesses have closed permanently um, because of the pandemic, and what that means, you know, that's just one indicator of how we're not looking at a full recovery here. If jobs have permanently disappeared, so that's another way in which, you know, things aren't aren't looking good going forward. One of the most frustrating things about watching this situation unfold is how preventable it was. Uh, not just the economic relief. in in terms of how generous it could have been, but just the underlying health crisis. Um, So, you know, I don't know the exact number, but, you know, the majority of deaths likely could have been prevented or something very close to that.
2: Who will be worst hit by the present and future economic crisis?
3: So going into this crisis, I would say that inequality in the U.S. was already so acute that, you know, we're at a point where most people are going to suffer, um, from the unfolding crisis. But of course, the people who will be most uh, badly hit are those who are who are the most vulnerable uh, and the most left behind. And by that, I mean, um, for example, workers in low wage sectors, they're kind of facing two potential uh, paths here. One is that they work in the part of uh, the low wage sector that's rapidly contracting. So in-person retail, for example, um, which is just evaporating before our eyes, or uh, they work for Amazon or one of these uh, larger online retail employers. And so in in these cases where workers are deemed essential, uh, if they're, for example, working in in grocery stores or in um, delivery, that means that they have to work during a pandemic. And uh, that means that they're at risk in terms of health. So, uh, there's a really fantastic recent article by economist uh, Suresh Naidu in The Nation where he says, you know, when you have essential workers who have no power relative to their employers, you're pretty much in a forced labor situation. Um, And, you know, the key tool that workers have to defend themselves has been unions and unionization in the U.S. is at an all-time low, something like 7% of private sector workers. So I think what we've seen recently with the wave of teacher mobilizations around schools reopening really shows that union power. Um, Chicago Teachers Union, I think they pretty much, you know, it was enough to call a potential strike vote um, and very quickly uh, the city kind of conceded, and schools have moved online for the fall. But most workers, private sector workers, they don't—they simply don't have that kind of uh, power. So, um, you know, one example of this is Amazon has ended. They had a temporary unpaid leave program uh, for workers who were exposed or or had a family member fall ill or got ill themselves from coronavirus. They've ended that program now. Workers are expected to come back. Um, so in that case, you know, we need a system where workers have some kind of leverage uh, in order to um, demand safe and healthy working conditions. Um, Second, I want to point out that um, there's also kind of a racial and ethnic inequality dimension to this. So black and brown workers are overrepresented in essential industries they're also um, less likely to be able to work from home. So something like 20% can work from home versus 30% of workers overall. Um, Also the average black and brown household has approximately one ninth uh, the average, the wealth of the average white household. So in times like this, when people are having to rely on savings, these families don't have anything to fall back on. Um, So this is. These are just, you know, a few of the ways that um, the crisis is going to kind of worsen already pretty bad uh, inequality in our society.
2: How will this compare to the Great Depression and the 2008 financial crisis? And for those of our listeners who weren't yet in the workforce in 2008, could you describe what it was like for those struggling to find work at that time?
3: So in terms of magnitude, the current crisis is actually much worse than the Great Recession. Uh, it's called a recession, and there are sort of debates around what to call it because of how quickly it unfolded. Uh, so a, a lot of the, the labeling of a recession has to do with how long the um, you know, health of the economy doesn't look good. But here, this was just a flash drop in employment due to the shutdowns. And in April, unemployment reached basically reached Great Depression levels. Um, the jobless rate has fallen slightly, but we're, we're just nowhere near recovered. Um, so two relevant facts, I think, about the Depression and the Great Recession are, um, one, the Depression worsened social mobility. So there's a study by an economist, James Feigenbaum, at Boston University, where he looks at how intergenerational mobility uh, got worse as a result of the Depression. And what that means is that your outcomes have more to do with how well off your parents are than, you know, anything you are able to do in your own lifetime. And part of that was driven by young men, basically, who grew up in low-income families um, having lower geographic mobility to kind of move around and get out of areas that were severely economically depressed, while men who grew up in higher-income families were able to go to areas that were better off and less damaged. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised, you know, the basic idea is that you need to sort of fall back on family resources and, and combine that with, uh, opportunity and ingenuity in order to, to weather this shock. So the fact that we have a lot of inequality and in wealth and savings means that most likely we're going to see a worsening of, of mobility there. Second, um, in terms of the great recession, Research by Jesse Rothstein, who's also at the Goldman School of Public Policy, shows that those who graduated during the Great Recession basically face permanently lower employment and earnings. So this is my generation actually graduated in 2009, <laughs> um, so we can share that. Um, they faced permanently lower employment and earnings even after the economy has recovered. So that's a phenomenon known as scarring. So, We've seen what's happened in the past, and that's all the more motivation to do something now uh, in terms of policy in order to prevent uh, these types of things from occurring.
2: Thanks for sharing that. And yeah, it's really, I guess I, I was in middle school in 2008. And so it's really different to think about how I, how people talked about it in middle school, not knowing anything about the economy. And like, those strong long-term impacts of that situation uh, and that kind of segues nicely into my next question which is what sort of stimulus would be necessary for everyday people to recover economically from this crisis so that we can not recreate past problems
3: yeah during you know um, times like this i think it's useful to actually think back to world war ii and um, there's a famous British economist, John Maynard Keynes, who wrote that, and he, he was very involved in, in government policy during World War II and how to pay for the war, how to handle the economic crisis that the, the war implied. And he said something really interesting. He said that what, what distinguishes a free society when the economic pie is fixed as in a time of war. So you know, people couldn't go out and buy things during World War II. Similarly today, when there's a pandemic raging, you have to stay at home. So the economic pie is fixed. And he said that what distinguishes a free society is it's overwhelming concern for how that pie is distributed. So he believed and argued that a crisis like the one we're experiencing today is not an excuse to postpone necessary reforms to reduce inequality, but actually governments should go much further at precisely those times to reduce disparities. So I think that's the right philosophy and right uh, framework for responding to the crisis today. Uh, we care not only how the, the crisis or the burden of the crisis is distributed, but also how we also should care about aggressively reducing inequality to ensure us against a future crisis. Um, so this is a time like any other for investing in people. And um, reducing inequality Um, and also I think something that gets missed when um, there are all these debates about extending unemployment insurance benefits or or stimulus payments you know that is the whole idea of the stimulus piece of it if people have money flowing in they'll spend it and that will stimulate the economy that will help uh, um, prevent shrinkage of the pie down the road so all of this really has the potential to pay for itself. So that's something that I wanted to, to mention.
2: Tied to investing in people, how do we make sure economic structures we create in recovering from the pandemic prioritize people and planet over profit?
3: Yeah, again, um, so you know, one of the pieces of the Green New Deal is uh, creating millions of jobs in the process of converting our economy to one that's... Um, you know, safe and environmentally friendly. Um, during World War II, you know, the, the government put 18 million people to work during the war effort. So that's, again, similar magnitudes uh, in terms of the number of unemployed today. And um, there's plenty to do. And uh, if we were to sort of put people to work in terms of the public health effort. Uh, testing and tracing to get the virus under control, if we were to expand healthcare access, if we were to expand childcare, universal childcare access during a time like this, um, expand the care economy and, and the number of people working in the care economy, all of these things will help um, pull us out of the, the recession that we're in today. There's There's certainly... You know, again, we should be thinking of money that's spent now to contain the virus um, and to reduce the economic pain people are feeling. That's an investment in our future because it reduces the amount of time that we have a smaller economy, um, contracted output, etc.
2: Thank you for sharing your vision of what the world could be. It makes me feel really hopeful. And thank you for doing the work that you do. And thanks again for being on the show.
3: Thank you again for having me.
2: It's crazy that people who started their careers during
0: the 2008 financial crisis never recovered economically. That's just nuts to me.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think what's also really telling is that just as we're seeing the tangible impacts of the climate crisis occur with increasing regularity, more and more within shorter intervals of time we're also seeing that economically and there's something that there's just something structurally unsound about a nation and an economic system our capitalist system that actually invites economic crisis every eight or ten years obviously the pandemic hastened this but the underlying brittleness, right of our economy was 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 there
0: yeah and i think that feeds into the point she made about how what distinguishes a free society is an overwhelming concern about how resources are distributed. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just, you know, clearly that's not the society that we're living in or some people really care about that and are fighting for that. But there are a lot of powers that be that are uh, keeping that from really being a reality here in America.
1: Yeah. I mean, Americans really subsist on this scarcity mythology that, really saps whatever our much vaunted freedoms are supposed to be uh, people have you know economic fears to always contend with and those really intersect in our country because we don't have health care for all with health concerns and people really are not as free <laughs> as 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 I think we'd like to believe in this country
0: right well let's get started on thinking about what we can do about this yeah um and and also uh, the other sides of of the pandemic, not just the economic side. Uh, I want to hear about um, how this has affected you just personally, Richard.
1: Yeah, well, I think this all relates to kind of what we were just talking about that scarcity informing or, or exposing just how unfree or unsafe we are, sometimes even the most privileged of us, you know. So I've been very fortunate that because of my class privilege and education privilege, the pandemic has not affected me very, very much. I get to work from remote from home. I get to teach remote from right. home. Uh, you know, for the first, you know, 10 days of the pandemic, I was living my best life, but uh, I ended up falling ill with something that actually still hasn't been confirmed whether it was COVID or not, but- Oh, shit, uh, damn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. It, no, it was, it was right at the start of it, Uh, right at the start of the pandemic and it still felt kind of like a kind of like a zombie movie like it was surreal just one night I noticed myself panting uh, just on a regular phone call not even talking especially long or loud and and it worsened to the point where I I woke up at 3 a.m. just sweating sweating from the physical exertion of trying to force my lungs open uh, to keep breathing it was (laughs) for someone who's like been in, in relatively quote unquote, good health on my life, it was a clear sign. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm sick. Like, this is something I've never felt before. But yeah, what was a trip about it was, you know, eventually I mustered up the strength to call the doctor, which I actually didn't want to do because I noticed that if I was sitting still, I was just fine. But anytime I talked with someone for more than a sentence, I would get lightheaded and faint and actually have to, I would take a nap. I, I guess pass out. I'd fall asleep for 30, 40 minutes. But I saved up enough oxygen to call you know, the doctor, and they said that they couldn't or wouldn't test me. There simply weren't enough tests to go around, and because I had no risk factors and I was too young and strong, uh, they were not gonna test me. And my dad, who was 50, got the same answer. So I don't know what the cutoff point was for getting tested, but I know that there were probably a lot of people in those early weeks who just were completely boxed out of um, the testing, whole testing. Right. Yeah, process. What they did do was, because I described my symptoms, they were like, "Yeah, that sounds real." So they they <laughs> oh my god yeah they FedExed me an inhaler and they were like, "Yep, call us in a week and you know, make sure you're still alive." And uh, <laughs> and the inhaler helped a little bit, but it was really uh, illuminating for me for someone who has health insurance, was continuing right. to make income, had paid time off and i still was a helpless yeah just i was just a helpless sick person for those two weeks you know and and even the insurance and everything didn't really protect me all that protected me was just kind of luck and and the oranges i was picking from my backyard that i'm I'm, i think saved my life but i don't know you know yeah so (laughs) um yeah i think again we keep seeing these stress points and fracture points in our health and economic infrastructure where even those who are purportedly free, even those who are purportedly safe, whether through insurance or economic stability or what, it's all just one tip of the thimble away from, from, from real chaos.
0: (laughs) Right. And, and the fact that, you know, during this period, police and military budgets have been, you know, increasing while Mm -hmm. social services like, public testing for example have been slashed or protections for the environment uh it's just insane yeah um, when 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 people with health insurance and with people with privilege and people who can work from home are having trouble um you know what does that say about the people who don't have all those things
1: luckily uh, this week Congress is introducing something called the thrive agenda I don't know if anyone else has has heard about this but it's a a plan to really transform and heal and and renew the country by investing in a vibrant economy and it's a cohesive progressive platform that has a clear vision for both the climate economic and the racial justice solutions that that we need so that agenda includes um, goals such as hundred percent clean energy in America by 2035 healing Nation to nation relationships with the indigenous peoples on this land and a just transition away from unsustainable industries and investment into green jobs like those in health, schools, care work, postal service, yeah. and investment in frontline communities.
0: Wow, where do I sign?
1: <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, let's hope it makes it through. And you know, earlier in the pandemic, uh, a whole group of researchers and policy experts and activists, they wrote a green stimulus plan that would sustainably and justly recover us from this current recession. And a lot of those ideas were what made it into the Thrive Act. So our team sat down and talked with Dr. Mijin Cha, who was actually one of the co-authors of that aforementioned green stimulus plan.
2: Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. We were really excited to learn about the Green Stimulus, especially because it supports the framework of both a Green New Deal and a People's Bailout. But just for our listeners who haven't heard of it before, can you tell us a little bit about what the Green Stimulus is and how you envision it will be implemented?
4: Sure. Um, So as you stated, it's uh, definitely aligned with the Green New Deal and the People's Bailout. Um, And the idea is that uh, you know, as we enter this post-COVID world, we will need stimulus, um, which we saw a couple rounds of in Congress already. Um, and the idea being that if we're going to have stimulus, we should have stimulus that actually stimulates an economy that is more just and more equitable, and also will help us address the climate crisis. So basically, it's a set of ideas that can be implemented that both decarbonize, but also create good jobs that are good quality jobs um, that will help reduce inequality and also make sure that people have work um, in this time when we're going to see really high re- levels of unemployment. And uh, when we think about how it could be implemented, I think one of the great things about the green stimulus is that it really builds on work that is currently being done. So, you know, there is energy efficiency and retrofitting happening, for instance, but it's just, we would we just recommend on a much larger scale. Um, and I think the other great thing about the green stimulus is that it is uh, a menu of ideas that will create work all across the country. So we know that there are buildings everywhere that need to be retrofit. We know that there's solar and wind that can be built out everywhere, public transportation um, and other things that we can do that will help both decarbonize our economy but also build a more just equitable future. Um, and of course, we, you know all of these are meant to be implemented as soon as it's safe for us to be outside again.
2: How will the green stimulus help us recover from the economic recession that we're facing right now?
4: So, I think when we talk about these things like a green stimulus for the Green New Deal, you know, they're fundamentally economic plans that are job creators. Um, there's a ton of work that needs to be done to decarbonize our society and our economy. Um, and we should be investing in those kinds of things like retrofitting, um, renewable energy buildup, public transportation. Um, than what we're doing now, which is doubling down on fossil fuel infrastructure. We know that fossil fuels, by nature, are a finite resource. Um, leave alone the climate crisis, but we also know that we are in the, we are already in a climate crisis, um, and we really need to be thinking about how can we start to decrease emissions meaningfully. Um, and so the green stimulus is a plan to is fundamentally a plan to put people to work, and it's just that the work that they'll be doing will also help us meet our climate goals. Um, so, it's a much smarter way of investing. I think it's a much uh, more equitable way because there are specific job quality concern, job quality controls in our stimulus. So what we don't want to see is a bunch of bad paying jobs that are low quality being created, right? We want to see good union jobs that are being created that help people into the middle class and also will help stave off the worst impacts of this economic crisis that will come from COVID. So in terms of what the work would look like, you know, we talk a lot about climate jobs or green jobs, but really it's more that we'll have new work. So not necessarily new jobs that will need entirely new skill sets and entirely new workers, right? So for instance, for folks that build pipelines, now maybe they build public housing, green green public housing. Um, and so in, in terms of the type of work that will need to be done, I think one of the great things about the green stimulus is that again, it is rooted in existing programs and existing I- ideas. So A lot of things that you'll hear from people who are not, I would say, aligned uh, in thinking in terms of carbon emissions are things like carbon capture and sequestration or renewable gas, all these things. These are technologies that have not yet been developed, right? So instead of wasting a bunch of money on things that will just continue our carbon infrastructure, we really have a moment now where we can invest in an infrastructure of the future, and that infrastructure is more efficient. It's fueled by renewable energy, um, and it is just a way for us to get into the future. Um, and you know, when we talk about just transition, I think one really important question is, what are we transitioning into, right? So we, we hear this term, I think, increasingly more frequently. Um, and I think it's a moment for us to really think about what do we want our world to look like, right? As we transition away from fossil fuels, what are we transitioning into? And the green stimulus and the people's bailout and the Green New Deal, you know, they're, we're transitioning into a world that is more just, that is more equitable, and will also be low to zero carbon. Um, and I think that is a future that is exciting, and I think is more uh, economically secure, um, and also helps us stave off the climate crisis, which we all—I mean—it's 100 degrees in LA today, so <laughs> um,
2: it's definitely here, and it's definitely something
4: that we have to address.
2: Thank you for sharing that. That vision of a more just future is really inspiring for me to hear. In your in your report that you wrote last year. You discussed the need to address carbon reduction in a way that accounts for the quote-unquote climate gap, otherwise known as the disproportionate environmental and economic burdens that have been placed on communities of color. How do you imagine a just transition could incorporate racial justice?
4: So I very firmly believe that there is no climate justice without racial justice, right? We cannot ignore racial inequality, economic inequality, and say that we are advocating for climate policies. There's no distinction in my mind that the way forward is a socially and economically just path. Um, And what does that mean in terms of just transition? You know, we are at this moment where there's a lot of momentum around defunding the police uh, or rethinking what um, policing looks like. And I think that's so important, not just for public safety, but for climate concerns, right? We always talk about the importance of protecting frontline communities. Um, And they're frontline because we say that they're hit first and worst with the impacts of climate change, and they also don't have the resources necessary to deal with the impacts of climate change. Well, if we think about that framework, then what does it really mean to protect frontline communities? And frontline communities are often communities of color that are bearing the burden of this police violence. So we cannot really talk about protecting frontline communities without thinking about things like defunding the police and redirecting those resources You know, the L.A. city budget, for instance, 54% of it goes to the police department. Well, what would that look like if that money actually went to schools and to housing those that are unhoused and to actually things that help us build not just a much more just world, but a low-carbon world, right? Like, we could use that money in, like, 9 million different ways that I can think of that would be better than militarizing our police department. So when we think about racial justice and just transition and climate change, You know, again, if we think about what are we transitioning into, and a just world means that we address racial justice as fundamental to climate justice. And I really believe there is no way forward on climate change without addressing racial and economic injustices. You know, a lot of environmental justice communities talk about extractive economies, right? And there's natural resource extraction, of course, but that's also talking about extraction of labor and extraction of people. And when we think about moving from extractive to regenerative, we need to stop extracting people which means that we need to stop this prison industrial complex. And so the idea of a regenerative economy is that we stop extracting resources, we stop extracting labor and we stop extracting people. So in that context, I think there is just no way forward without considering racial justice in in, within climate concerns.
2: California is a really wealthy state with a lot of well-meaning liberals, but we have our own very deep structural racism here as well. What role do you see California specifically playing in a just transition, and what could a green stimulus mean for our state? Mm
4: -hmm. You know, I think the problem of the well-meeting liberals is widespread. (laughs) Uh, I did my PhD in London after my law degree, and then I lived in New York for a long time, so really liberal centers that have all these problems that we're trying to eradicate, right? Like the inequality in a city like LA is insane. and when we think about people think of California as being this liberal haven, um, and in some ways I think it's true, right? I think that some of the th- policies they have, particularly about integrating undocumented workers and in families, are great. Um, you know, there are these climate goals that are great. But if we look at something like cap and trade, like this is a terrible idea, and as you're seeing it manifest in a way that's not, it's not working. One, there's not as many emissions reductions as we think that there should be, and two, you know. Th- the environmental justice community was really against gap and trade because they were like, we're going to bear the burden of this pollution. And research has shown they are bearing the burden of the pollution, right? So we have this market-based mechanism that's trying to address a problem that's not caused by a market, right? Like climate change is not a market concern. Climate change is a structural and institutional concern. Um, I think, so I think that all that to say, California, we have our own baggage and we have our own problems um, that are replicated across the world. Um, I think one, thing that is very interesting about California is that you know we do have the fifth largest economy in the world. So that if we were to do things that were really progressive like electrify all of our vehicles, electrify all of our buildings, we can have an impact outside of just the state. And you saw that a little bit with you know our cars are a little bit cleaner than other states. And so because our market is so big it makes sense for auto uh, manufacturers to make more of the low emissions vehicles than to have different vehicles for different states, right? So using the market potential of California to drive some of this green infrastructure, green products, I think, is a role that we can play. Um, I think that, you know, you, the other role that California can play is really leading the nation in an equitable climate future, right? So, I wish in my dream, you know, we would admit that cap and trade sucks and try to replace it with something else, um, and really lead the way to an equitable climate justice future. Um, but I will also say that the work that's being done on the ground by environmental justice groups and climate justice groups is amazing and I think that there are a lot of lessons that can be learned by folks that are on the ground that are fighting for these um, fighting for these things and they're winning which I think is really exciting. Um, so I would export maybe those things from
2: from the states. Could you go into a little bit in more detail how cap and trade hurts frontline communities and like how that mechanism, doesn't work, I guess, the way it's intended.
4: So, what the concern was of environmental justice communities so, you know, cap and trade is that you set a cap for carbon emissions and then you issue permits up to that cap. So, if you have a business that emits, let's say, 10, this is not the right word, but like 10 tons of carbon dioxide emissions per year, you have to buy permits to let you emit 10 tons of carbon dioxide per year. It's a way to raise revenue, um, but the concern is that, you know, and which we're seeing happening is things like offsets. So you don't have to necessarily reduce your carbon emissions, but you can like plant a bunch of trees somewhere else, and then that counts as your carbon budget is filled. Um, you know, the concern is that basically it gives you a right to pollute. And when you can pay to pollute, we can think about what communities are impacted. So the environmental justice communities, you know, they're still hot spots, right? They still don't have um, that meaningful co-pollutant reduction in their communities. And there is a set aside, which I think is about 35% of cap and trade revenue has to go to disadvantaged communities. But the standard is that it has to go to the benefit of these communities, which means that you could do like high speed rail that would go through say Bakersfield and that would be considered a benefit to Bakersfield rather than investing directly in Bakersfield or directly in projects that that are in Kern County that are in Bakersfield that directly reduce emissions and also create jobs for people that live there. So I feel like, again, you know, it's a market-based solution and we don't have a market-based problem. So the solution does not fit the scale of the problem and the scope of the problem. Um, and I hope as we go forward, we, you know, there's a lot of momentum around a carbon tax, which I think is equally misguided um, the, you just, we're just not going to get the emissions reductions that we need through market-based mechanisms and they always have regressive impacts. So they'll always hurt communities that are already being hurt. I have to be honest. I've been doing this for a long time, probably longer than you all have been alive. <laughs> um, and I feel that, especially in the last couple of years, not a lot of hope. I'll be honest. Um, and I I saw somebody say, uh, you know, we should stop asking what gives you hope, and instead ask what gives you courage. And I thought that was a really helpful framing. Like, what gives me courage? To, courage to fight. Um, and I have to say honestly, you know groups like Sunrise are really inspiring you know like the climate strikes are really inspiring, like young people who are engaged, but also the demands that you have are are really really will meet the the you know the demands that you have really do rise to the occasion you know it's not these mar- neoliberal ideas it is a transformation of our system, which is exactly what we need to do to fight the climate crisis um I think the sophistication with which the youth-led movements have have shown is really inspiring. Um, and I think that, you know, in the la- these last couple of weeks, seeing all these people in the streets, I am actually starting to feel some stirrings of hope. Like, all these people in the streets for more than one day, you know, going on weeks now, when was the last time that has really happened? Um, and I think that it's so... I just think it's so inspiring. And the climate strikes as well, right? It wasn't just one strike. It was like a sustained movement. Um, and I really think that if we, if we look to young folks, um, the dedication, the like righteousness, the, the way that you all like build movements, I think is really inspiring. Um, so I would say that looking to what's happening now in the climate movement is really a moment of both courage and
5: hope.
0: I really loved when she talked about how we can't have climate justice without racial and economic justice.
1: Exactly. And this is the drum that we'll keep on beating over here at Sunrise <laughs> Bay Radio, <laughs> you know, is all of these are connected. They, yes. The problems started in concert and we're going to fix them in concert, you know, if, if we actually valued our workers' labor and valued people of color's lives, Black lives, then we wouldn't be able to expend resources in the way that we do, the unsafe way that we do, that thereby accelerates climate injustice. So yeah, that was, right. I, I, I love that point.
0: And part of like protecting frontline communities is defunding the police, right? Yes. <laughs> I love that too. Um, and and just the idea that, you know, it's so obvious right now that what America needs is jobs. and everybody loves jobs that's an easy sell to you know people who typically don't vote for the progressive agenda and it's like how can we bring them in because this seems like such an easy sell you know it's exactly. like let's 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 create new jobs and there'll be low carbon jobs and they'll be good paying union jobs
1: exactly that's like harkening back to to the prior interview you know freedom and democracy really exist on a bedrock of economic mobility right and that's why I think the language that the climate movement has been adopting and continues to adopt of new deals or green stimulus is so effective and compelling and accurate because by radically altering our budget priorities we can radically alter the world we can create new jobs like you said Marie that are low carbon and kind of you know Feed two birds with one scone, as they say. The non-violent version <laughs> of that saying. Yeah,
0: I haven't heard that. That's I, amazing. I love scones. Yeah, and I got hers. trouble
1: at work for two birds and one stone. So we're we're two two birds, one scone now.
0: <laughs> Changing times. Yeah, um, I, I think it also is important to note that you know when when if we go back to talking about the New Deal, um, mm-hmm. that wasn't a very popular policy, but it turned out. To really give all these boosts um, to the country in these areas mm. that that um, people really needed it, like uh, the um, Conservation Corps and all these cool jobs programs um, yeah. that still exist today, and I think could really use more funding and more momentum behind them, and all that would be really, really great to see. Uh, the question is sort of how do we how do we build how do we get all the people on our team and um, asking for this change?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What, what are well, the tools in our toolbox, you know?
1: Exactly, well, and that's what I was gonna say is the great thing <laughs> about, about change and energy is, is kind of a, a circular feedback loop where wins on this high policy level can really energize people on the ground and mm-hmm. give us something to rally around and then continue to push the conversation forward in real time and thereby influence policy again. So as long as we keep pushing it and having big things to rally around, like in this case, we were looking at the Thrive Act, hopefully we can build up the right amount of people power to start engaging.
0: Right. And some of that engagement might look a lot like mass organizing. Mm. So one, one part, one thing that Sunrise uh, really emphasizes is that it takes three and a half, Three and a half percent of the population, just three and a half percent, engaging in sustained, nonviolent, direct action to mm. create change. Right. So if three and a half percent of the American population were in the streets protesting, that would be enough. And we've sort of seen that with things like Black Lives Matter, you know, yeah. society can't function as sort of designed uh, if enough people are uh, making their voices heard. Uh, now, it took months for the government to weakly respond to the COVID pandemic and the economic outfall, whereas it immediately mobilized a militarized police in response to nonviolent protests. Yep. What does that tell you? You know, what? <laughs> what, do, what do you think about that? Like, that's crazy, right?
1: I mean, it's just clear where where our our state's priorities lie, you know, and and you have, when you get right down to its barest level, the police inhibit change, Uh, crowd control inhibits change. If we look at this and say that literally all it takes is 3.5% of the population mobilizing to start creating systemic and cultural change, then the status quo is a vested interest in making sure that number... Never hit 3.5. Right, you know? and yeah.
0: demonizing, you know, protesters and all that. Right. Um, so, it, it does sort of feel like we're in a bad moment, but mm. one silver lining we can take from the situation is that people are really enter, like activated right now, you know? Mm. We've had a huge showing of support for Black Lives Matter and for just civic engagement and political engagement. Uh, A lot of dialogue, a lot of energy. Uh, And so I think a lot of people are looking for ways to channel all those big feels into organizing. So community organizing is a really powerful tool and has successfully brought about positive change in recent US history. So let's dive into our next interview with our correspondent, Noah, who talked to Fred Glass, a labor historian and communications director for the California Federation of Teachers about how we can learn from historical mass mobilizations to bring about progressive change today. I'd love
6: to hear more about the sort of people power that was necessary to get the government moving into action.
5: So the 1920s was a time that was not so different from the last 40 years in terms of a general business philosophy that was in control of society. In the 1920s, you had Republican administrations. You had a belief that taxes should be low, especially on the wealthy. You know, uh, the government had raised the top marginal tax rate in 1918, 1919 to pay for World War I. Uh, up to 77% and so the wealthiest Americans were paying that level of taxation and as soon as they could under the leadership of Andrew Mellon, one of the richest men in the country who was treasury secretary, they lowered that back down again down to 25% which is a ridiculous rate for the wealthy to be paying. It allows them to keep far too much money, accumulate too much power through that money and provides too little for everybody else in revenues to government and government programs so when the great crash occurred in 1929 and shortly thereafter unemployment began to spike that philosophy was still in control and it took a few years before uh, Americans could figure out exactly what to do There was, beneath the surface of a shrunken labor movement in that period, also a parallel with the present, um, there was a process of radicalization going on. Uh, The Socialist Party, which had become in the 1900s and teens a force in society, um, with about a third of the unions in the American Federation of Labor, with substantial socialist memberships and leadership, and by 1919-1920, 19, 19, 19, uh, a split occurring there were two big left organizations in the country the communist party uh, which originally split in two itself when it came out of the socialist party but then reunited in the 20s you had both the socialists and the communists as growing forces during the early days of the great depression where what they had to say that was maybe not listened to as closely in the relatively prosperous 1920s, relatively, I say, because it wasn't prosperous for everybody. Um, they, They now had something to say that was being heard by millions of working people. And that was that capitalism was not a good system for working people. It seemed like it was collapsing and taking down millions of people along with it. And why do we need a system like this when we can build another one? So these ideas were bubbling around, and by the early 1930s, it was gaining a greater hearing within the labor movement. And so you had working people who were starting to do things both in communities and in workplaces, such as uh, there still were with 25% unemployment, uh, doing things that previously were considered too radical, like when people were being evicted, there would be a phone tree and people would hear very quickly um, through their organizations or community neighborhood-based organizations set up by organizations like the Socialist Party and the Communist Party, that an eviction was taking place And people would very quickly gather and there would be too many people for the sheriffs and their deputies to deal with. Uh, They would, as they would pull people's stuff out of their apartment or house, the people outside would take that furniture and bring it back in again. And this kind of thing was happening in rural areas as well, where if a farm was being foreclosed on, uh folks nearby would gather and as the sale of the farm would take place by pre-arrangement a farmer would raise his hand and say i bid one dollar and nobody else would say a word and that would be a clear signal that this farm should continue to belong to the people who were being foreclosed on so those kind of radical tactics we're going on outside the labor movement. Within the labor movement, there was a, a growing militancy that um, sort of hit a peak in 1934 when there were three general strikes of American cities San Francisco, Toledo, Ohio, and uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, where the entire cities were essentially shut down. And for a few days, workers ruled the streets and the workplaces. It was, all. there was also a general strike of the entire textile industry from Maine down through the south. Ultimately, that was unsuccessful. It was a failed general strike. But between that event and the citywide general strikes, which did have more successful conclusions, working people began to realize what kind of power they potentially held within their hands when they organized themselves. It is not a coincidence that a year to the day after Bloody Thursday, this was the day in San Francisco, July 5th, when Howard Sperry and Nick Bordeaux's two strikers were killed by police. Um, This was the spark that kicked off the general strike uh, during a maritime strike. It's not a coincidence that it was a year to the day later that Congress passed the National Labor Relations Act, which for the first time created federal laws governing workplace negotiations and conflict resolution. So I think you can see a direct connection. It took a year because Congress doesn't act instantly often, and this was a big piece of legislation that had to deal with a lot of opposition. but. Um, it was was a substantial piece of legislation that guaranteed worker rights that would not have happened. It didn't spring full-blown out of Roosevelt's head when he signed it. It wouldn't have happened had it not been for the patient organizing and the execution of the tasks that it takes to organize over time that preceded the law. I wonder from
6: uh, your perspective, what are um, the things that a environmental movement can do to build better relationships with local labor unions?
5: I'd say there are two things. When the unions need help, you should be there to help. Uh, the most dramatic way, I suppose, is a strike. Um, but strikes don't happen every day. And there are other kinds of issues that unions are involved with all the time legislative, political, um, organizing, uh, organizing unorganized workplaces. So these are all things that people who are not in the unions can help with. You have to be there for people. I think one of the most important things that organizations, broadly speaking, on the left can do is to form coalitions based upon their common interests. That doesn't mean that the common interests are going to be equally felt at all times by all partners. Sometimes it's um, we need to go out there and help people who are not quite like us and who are suffering from different kinds of problems that we do, but who, broadly speaking, do share the same interests. So that means working people, to me, as somebody who comes out of the labor movement. um, We all share an interest in having uh, clean oceans and skies and land, and uh, we all share an interest in having a good public education system so our children can learn uh, about the world properly and uh, move on from there into uh, opportunities post-school. Uh, We need good, clean transportation systems. We need uh, a public health system that uh, is not like the fragmented mess that we have in the for-profit non-system that we have today under capitalism. Um, So coalition building is, you know, it's hard work. Organizations like LNS, exist precisely to create a space for environmental and labor organizations to talk to one another. And those organizations need to be nurtured and they need to um, be expanded expanded so that the conversations can grow deeper and more meaningful. I think fear is a great throttler of conversation. And so, if you have people who have worked all their lives in one kind of industry, and that industry shouldn't exist, they're going to have a hard time hearing about moving on to something that doesn't exist yet. I believe that the Green New Deal offers that opportunity. If you can sit down and have a conversation with somebody who works in a coal plant, or somebody who... Uh, is currently unemployed part of the year in the building trades because building trades tend to have seasonal work. Um, If you point out that Green New Deal is a jobs program for creating a bridge to the future by retrofitting everything that isn't sustainable right now and could reasonably provide millions and millions of jobs for many many years i think that's something they would listen to let's say uh, we get a democratic president and a democratic congress the next step is to get out in the streets in just the same numbers that we're doing right now and tell that congress and that president what we need with you know a different kind of vote voting with our feet into the streets and voting with our bodies to say, okay, you're there. That's just step one. Step two is Medicare for all and a Green New Deal. Let's do it. And to sit there in the streets, occupy those those corridors of power with our bodies until we get what we need. Yeah. That- Um, leads
6: in perfectly to my last question, which we've already talked about quite a bit. But um, really, I want you to just try to, I guess, as visually as possible, paint for our audience what what it would look like to have an entire country striking and mobilizing to a scale where all of those demands are met, you know, the demands of the movement for black lives, Medicare for all Green New Deal. Um, At the Juneteenth strike, the union leader talked about how, um, you know, the people working public transportation across the entire country are largely African American, and the people working at the docks are largely African American. And um, it feels like we're in this moment where working class people all over the country are coming together around the movement for black lives. And um, yeah, I just, I just want to be able to like visualize what nationwide mass strike and people power you think would really look
5: like. We saw hints of that during the red state revolt of 2018 and 2019 for in public education. So That means a level of mobilization over the course of several months that forces governments and employers to recognize they can't say no anymore and they have to negotiate, and they have to negotiate seriously. So that will mean something that is difficult right now in the private sector because the level of unionization is so low, just 6% in the private sector compared to about a third of the Um, public sector is unionized Um, there's going to have to be organizing taking place in the unorganized industries and these coalitions are going to have to be built political coalitions, legislative coalitions but also a continuous mobilization as much as possible in the streets these things will feed off one another if we are able to continue to uh, mount big demonstrations, marches, rallies, sit-ins, that'll have an impact in the legislative and electoral arenas. And I don't know that I can sketch out exactly what that would look like, except we always have to be looking for the next organizing possibility. How is it that we build broader and deeper? How is it that we reach out to people who should have common interests with us, but are not yet standing side by side with us. What are the points of intersection for us where we can do that? To me, that's the key to how we're going to build this bigger, brighter future, is by building the biggest, broadest, but principled coalitions that we can build. Wow, I love hearing from
1: organizers and people who are really rooted in that whole legacy because uh, that's the legacy that time and again continues to produce change, right? And it is about organizing. The, the Black Lives Matter uprisings have been going on for over a decade now, but thanks to the confluence of circumstances of this summer, are really becoming highly organized, cross-class, multiracial people who have no vested interest themselves as white people in these issues are taking time and money out of their own day to get out there and keep mobilizing
5: people.
0: Definitely. Uh, and I think it's a an awesome example about how building coalitions is such a key part of organizing. For example, Sunrise sort of is on the same, is part of a larger coalition that Black Lives Matter is also in. You know, we we have separate, not separate, but we have distinct issues within that coalition, but we're all still working towards the same larger goals. And by both applying pressure, we're, we're chipping away at those problems. So I think that's a huge part of it. Also, side note that Fred Glass is the father of one of our co-organizers here at Sunrise Bay Area, which is just cool to see that legacy of activism getting passed down through family. Um. <laughs>
1: definitely, definitely very cool. You know, you're reminding me actually, um, I delivered like some food to my grandma Diane a little while ago and she, uh, she was a UC Berkeley student in, in the late 60s. She was 16 when she was a freshman at UC Berkeley. So she was a part of the free speech movement and the civil rights movement and i brought her some 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 ice cream <laughs> and she like made me sit and talk with her and she was like you know like this is getting as big now as the civil rights movement all those documentaries all those movies you see like this modern movement is getting that big so i hope you just keep going you know so there is that legacy that that our ancestors get to tell us about that uh this coalition building is is A, nothing new, and B, proven, a proven tool in making big policy and, and systemic advances.
0: Right. Yeah, we, we want to move away from those Reagan-era policies because they're not serving us anymore. And I think a lot of people are on the same page about
1: that. Exactly. All right. So, we here at Sunrise Bay Radio want to express excitement for everyone. And encourage people to continue mobilizing in the streets, online, however, and whenever you can, to advocate for people's rights. Again, all of these issues are linked. And by justly and equitably attacking one, you're doing a bit to attack all of them. Zooming back into something we talked about earlier, the Thrive Agenda in Congress right now is a resolution that commits to improving the lives of all people. And providing a truly justice and climate-centered solution to the current economic crises. So we have efforts going on through our official federal government that can and should be paired with consistent engagement by all of you listeners in whatever way you can. So thanks for tuning in to the second ever episode of Sunrise Bay Radio. The Thrive Agenda will be in Congress this week. Call your federal representatives and ask them to support the resolution and check with your local organizers about how to plug in to local actions and keep moving the ball forward.
0: And tune into our next episode to hear from youth organizers about how it feels to be voting in their first presidential election.
1: That's it for this week. I'm Richard.
0: And I'm Marit.
1: And thanks for hanging out with us once more at Sunrise Bay Radio.
0: Thanks to our whole team at Sunrise Bay Radio. Our producers for this episode were Isaac, Noah, Mukta, Ashlyn, and Julia. Special thanks to Echo Marine for our theme music.